1 Corinthians chapter 10, and we're beginning at verse 14 down to verse 33. Let's hear God's Word. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men, judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? What am I saying then? That an idol is anything, or what is offered to idols is anything? Rather, that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own, but each the other one's well-being. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market, asking no questions for conscience' sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. If any of those who do not believe invites you to dinner and you desire to go, eat whatever, eat whatever is set before you, asking no question for conscience' sake. But if anyone says to you, this was offered to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who told you, and for conscience' sake, for the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. Conscience, I say, not your own, but that of the other. For why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? But if I partake with thanks, why am I evil spoken of for the food over which I give thanks? Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to the Jews or the Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. And there is the inspired and inerrant Word of God that endures forever. May God bless it to us. Well, we are continuing on in the series about the means of grace, those things that Christ Himself uses to nurture and strengthen our faith in Him. And uh, when we continue on with this series, we we can see that it is the Lord who is at work and who is very concerned that our faith in Him grows and is nurtured. He does not want us to be stagnant. It is not a simple thing of coming to faith and then carry on as if nothing's changed. The Lord is at work uh, and He uses means to help us grow in our faith. He does not work in a vacuum. It is not one of these things where people like to say, let go and let God. Uh, that is a very careless way to think of the Christian life. 
Because God is using things that He has laid out for us in order to help us be built up in the faith and to walk in His grace and to live a life that brings Him glory. We see that is the purpose of Paul writing here when he talks to the Corinthians about fleeing from idolatry and being guarded about how they even eat and drink with unbelievers. That they do not give offense to anyone, whether they're Jews or Greeks, or especially, I would say, to the church of God. We are to be concerned about living to God's glory. And we are to be concerned about uh, embracing those things that God has set before us as the means by which we can glorify Him in our life. The means of grace. And thus far as we've seen, His Word is preeminently the means of grace. To walk and to do and to labor and to attribute it all to the name of God without a consciousness of what His Word says is to walk foolishly in our life. Because His Word has been given to us to direct us in our thoughts, in our words, and in our actions that God may receive glory in our lives. The other ordinances we've been looking at Baptism and tonight the Lord's Supper. They are not casual ordinances. They are given and instituted by Christ as sacraments. That's why we use the word sacraments. They are used by the Lord to be a sign and seal of His covenant of grace. His promise to save us and to save us to the uttermost. And tonight as we consider the Lord's Supper, we understand this is one of only two sacraments. There are not any other sacraments other than the Lord's Supper and baptism that Christ instituted to be a sign of the grace that is found in His sacrificial, substitutionary death on our behalf. And how Christ uses both baptism and tonight the Lord's Supper to seal the benefits of His sacrifice to us. And that, that's where the Lord's Supper meets us as, as something that is there used by Christ to nourish us, to help us grow in grace, to engage us in godliness, and to, especially as we see from our text, to build up that fellowship and communion that we have with Him. He wants us to know, I am your Lord. I am your Savior. I am your intercessor. And even though I am in heaven, I am spiritually with you. And I have fellowship and communion with you by my Spirit. And the Lord's Supper is perhaps one of those uh, mighty ordinances that Christ uses along with His Word to communicate that communion that we have with Him. Now like baptism, so it is with the Lord's Supper. There are a spectrum of beliefs within the visible church concerning what the Lord's Supper is about. We have the Roman Catholic view of transubstantiation and that the Mass 
Mass is a continual sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. Uh, It's false on all occasions. But that's one teaching that's out there. We have the Lutherans' doctrine of the real presence of Christ and how He is present and within and around and over and under uh, the table and thus communicating Himself. Uh, We have the reductionist belief. And I call it a reductionist belief. It's found in those more Baptistic Pentecostal circles where the Lord's Supper is nothing more than a memorial feast. We are simply remembering the sacrifice of Christ. And I set these before you because there is a diversity of understanding that exists in the visible church. Most of them fall into the same problem as we do with baptism. We are looking at it from the perspective of what we bring to the table. And not what Christ Himself is communicating to us through the table. That's not to say that faith isn't important. Faith is important. To come to this table and to partake of the elements without faith in Christ as Lord, as Savior. To come to this table without that humility of acknowledging that we are sinners. And to come to this table without being in submission to Christ and to His church is to come to this table in an unworthy and offensive matter, manner. is to be worthy of Christ's judgment. Because we are profaning His name and we are taking uh, these things in vain before the Lord. We are treating them as something that is our right and not something that is a privilege and a grace from our Lord. So it, it, it really uh, help, it really behooves us to, to understand what the communion table is about. Now, before we get into our three points, I want to say two things very quickly. And the first is this, is that the Lord's Supper is not a sacrifice of Christ. That clumsy language is even even finding its way into not just Roman Catholic circles, but in Protestant circles. We are not repeating that once for all sacrifice of Christ. We are being taken to it in remembrance of what He has done. But we are no way worshipping the elements. We are worshipping the Lord of these elements. And He has once for all offered Himself up. We are remembering the once for all sacrifice that is sufficient 2,000 years later to our generation. So do keep that in mind. But I want to say on the other side of it that it is not a mere memorial service remembering Christ's death. I'm repeating this point because this is also one that is most prominent in Protestant circles. Yes, we're remembering Christ. We're remembering His body bearing our sins. We're remembering His blood shed for us. But we're doing it in holy communion with Christ. 
We are communing in Christ's death, wherein our Lord uses this sacrament to nourish, engage, and guard our fellowship with Him. That's the three points that we have. And we see that point being made by Paul when you look at verses 16 and 17. Communion, fellowship, enjoined together. (laughs) You don't have fellowship with yourself. You're not having fellowship with the bread and the cup. (laughs) But when we eat and when we drink, who are we fellowshipping with? We are fellowshipping first and foremost with the Lord our Savior. We are communing with Him. And secondly, in that same time, we are together as His church communing and fellowshipping with Christ. It's mystical. And I've used that word carefully. It's not that we are experiencing some ecstatic spiritual event. But it is mystical in that we are being joined to Christ, to one another in Christ, and to the whole of the church, even the church triumphant in the Lord. It is a declaration by the Lord, here are my people, the people from every nation, tribe, and tongue that I have called forth and made my people and blessed them with my salvation to make them one in God. And so there's a richness to this table that we want to embrace and realize. And what is it that Christ is desiring to do? That's where our thoughts need to go. Not about what this means to me and how it warms my heart and how I feel all tingly after I have have eaten and and drunk of the table. Uh, I only share with you things that I've had people say to me. While some of that might be helpful to some people in their own souls. What is it that Christ wants to do for you? And, and that's the focus of these three points. And first, we, we see that what Christ wants to do is He wants to nourish you in your communion with Him. Christ instituted the Lord's Supper during the Passover meal. And I'm, I hope you can bear with this little thought. When you read 1 Corinthians 11, which follows from our text here, and we see the more clear instruction of the Lord's Supper brought out in that text. You know, there's not that many places in the New Testament where the Lord's Supper uh, is explained to us. (laughs) You have to draw it together from many parts and passages to understand its fuller intent. Just as you have to do with baptism. Just as you have to do with the Trinity. It's not a doctrine that just, oh, here, here's one verse or one passage that speaks to everything. But when you, when you realize it was instituted during the Passover meal, and so they were, when the first Lord's Supper was, was brought to, to the apostles who stood as that foundation for Christ's church and representative of His church, 
Christ was handing it over to the church as that which is now to be conducted until He returns. He had communion with the first semblance of the church and He said, I will not have communion with you again until that day when I return and you sit with Me at the table of the Lamb in eternal glory. He's waiting for that. They, they celebrated it around a meal. And then you read in 1 Corinthians 11 and 11 following, it seems that that became the practice of the early church. Celebrating the Lord's Supper in conjunction with a meal. Now the problem when you get to chapter 11 is that they were uh, wrongly using the Lord's Supper so that it no longer was the Lord's Supper. You look at verse 20 of chapter 11 and he says, when you come together, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. You're not celebrating my supper. Why? Because you don't regard one another in me, the Lord is saying. You separated yourself. You account the wealthy as being worthy of eating by themselves and the poor, well, if they make it or not, that's their problem. We don't care. There's not this communion and oneness that Christ designed and desired for this meal to accomplish. And by placing it in the realm of a meal, Christ was bringing out a symbolism that we need to understand. Why do you eat two or three meals a day? (laughs) Why is it that for most of us to go more than 12 hours without eating, we're near to fainting? (laughs) We understand food and drink are necessary to nourish the body, to maintain its health and strength. Well, that symbolism is not lost by Christ at this table. He chose bread and wine to represent the communion and the nourishment of communion that He brings to our souls. Our souls need to be nourished in the grace of our Lord. And He is saying with this sacrament that that is what I will do for you. To strengthen you, to help you, to walk in in peace and rest with Me. Jesus even said in John 6 is a, a chapter we're going to look to a little bit here in respect of this. And this point is the biggest point I think we need to grasp. But he says in John 6, Labor for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because the Father has set His seal on Him. And then he goes from there to come and to explain to us the theology of the Lord's Supper, even though it hadn't been instituted at that point. It's very interesting the three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that detail the life and ministry of Christ, they all record the Lord's Supper being instituted on the night of Jesus' arrest, the eve of His crucifixion, the night of the preparation of the Passover meal. They all record it. John's Gospel doesn't. But John's Gospel brings out the theology of the Lord's Supper in chapter 6 after Jesus has fed the 5,000. 
And he uses the same imagery of the bread and the wine and speaking to the people how he is now that bread of heaven that has come down to give life to those who will partake of him and that unless you eat and drink of the body and the blood of the Lord, you will have no life in you. And there is that theology of our communion with Christ being nourished by what this meal represents. The Son of Man will give you that food which endures to eternal life. (laughs) And it is found only in Christ. And what Christ promises to do is to nourish your growth in grace. Turn with me, if you would, to... uh, John chapter 6. And, and just see some of this language in, in verses 57 and, and 58. We know these words are controversial. We know Rome wrongly uses them to make it sound like the bread actually becomes flesh and the wine actually becomes His blood. That's not what Jesus is saying. We know the early church was persecuted because... Uh, its opposers would look at this language and consider the the feast meals that they would enjoy and saying they're being cannibalistic. (laughs) Uh, That was a charge that was against the early church, but that's not what this is about. What Jesus is saying is, my flesh and my blood is what nourishes my grace in your life. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. And there Christ is talking about how you, dear people, need to have your faith strengthened and nurtured so that you may mature. You need to know more than once. You need to know many times, often in your life, that Jesus is the bread of heaven. And He uses that imagery to say, just as you cannot live without bread, you cannot live without Me. And He communicates that point through the bread and the wine at this table. You see, it's not just remembering. It's a sacrament that brings life to us. You need to know Jesus is abiding in you. And you in Him. You need to know where your wisdom and your obedience, what your wisdom and your obedience rely upon. You need to have humility working in you for you to repent and receive forgiveness. You need to understand your union in Him with the Father. You need these things so that you may endure your time on this life and live and walk through all the trials of life to the glory of God. And Christ keeps saying to you at this table, I am your help. I am your strength. I am your life. Feed on me. You think of how the Lord Jesus said in Matthew 10. You know those words well. I use them almost every time at the Lord's table. Come to me, you who are what? Weary and heavy laden. 
And I will what? I will give you rest. My friends, that's the great invitation of the table. I will say on my own part, that's why I believe the Lord's Supper is and ought to be a weekly event. It doesn't diminish at all its purpose. But we're constantly being brought to the One who is the bread of life. And as the bread and the cup are used to signify His sacrifice for us, what He does with this table as He says to our soul, yes, you have sinned against Me, but if you humble yourself and you repent, I will be faithful. Remember 1 John 1, 9? I will be faithful to cleanse you from all your unrighteousness and to revive your soul. And the Lord is wanting to do that. Again, you've heard me say this many times. How slow are you to repentance? When, when sin is weighing on your hearts, how slow are you to bend the knee and say, Oh God, I have sinned against you. When trials rise up in your life, how quick are you to recognize maybe God's discipline is meeting me. And I need to get on my knees and say, Father, help me to understand, is there sin in my life that I have been neglecting? that I haven't repented of. And and the table is here purposed to constantly bring us to the remembrance of the cross that alone deals with all our sins. Because the Lord doesn't want us walking in them. He wants us to be walking in the freedom that He brings through repentance and restoration. Christ uses the Lord's table, to bring His grace to your soul. And in that way, He uses this to nourish our, not only that growth in that grace. You know, I, I, I want to say this just as a quick aside. Peter says in Second Peter 3, verse 18, grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. What does it mean to grow in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. It means to come before Him day after day after day and realize, Lord, You only are sufficient to deal with all my sin. And the Lord's table He uses to communicate that. And that brings us to the assurance of God's love. This communion is being nourished where we grow in knowing the love of God. Again, John 6. You look at 30, verse 37 and, and down to verse 39. Jesus talks there about how the Father, all that the Father gives me will come to me and the one who comes to me I will not cast out. I have come down from heaven not to do my will but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of the Father who sent me that all He has given me I should lose nothing but should raise them up at the last day. And he goes on in in this chapter then to talk about how His body and His blood are in fact the sending uh, of God, of His Son, to make that atonement for our sins so that we should not be lost. 
And whose will is it that we should not be lost? It's not just Jesus. It's the Father's. And it's a will that He set in place from eternity. And He wants us to be assured of this. And He goes on to speak about that promise. You go to Romans chapter 5 and you see the same thing. How did God demonstrate His love to you? God demonstrated His love to you in sending His Son while you were still sinners to die for you. And you see, this table is Jesus saying, know that the Father, not just me, know that the Father loves you. It is He who sent me to be your substitutionary death and sacrifice. I always say this to people, to Christians especially. How do you know the Father loves you? When do you question or neglect, or forget the Father's love. It's when those trials of life begin to rise up. We sometimes think the enemy of God is stronger than Christ or God Himself altogether. We sometimes forget that trials are part of this life, not always, in fact, less than always, from Satan but from God Himself. God's way of reminding us that in this life, Romans 8, we shall experience tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, and sword. Now Satan would try to use some of those things to get us to doubt the Father's love. But where do we look to know the Father loves me? It's the cross. God has demonstrated His love to you. And that even when you were sinners, even when you were walking in the ungodliness of your life, even when you were enemies of God, He sent His Son to die in your place. And Christ at this table isn't just speaking of His own particular grace and mercies that He blesses us with. He's coming here and saying, know the Father's love. Like the song says, how deep the Father's love for us. This Lord's table is used by Christ to fill you with the knowledge, yes, of sins forgiven, but also that assurance God has no wrath against you anymore. God does not hold you in condemnation. He has worked to restore union and fellowship and to speak to your soul of the life that you now have with Him in His Son. And Christ is nourishing our soul with these truths. It's not a mere memorial, is it? But it's also a table that speaks of communion experienced in our lives. And again, going back to 1 Corinthians 10 and just looking at at this passage, uh, verses 16 to 20, four times the Greek word koinonos, which means communion, which means fellowship or a shared participation. 
Four times that word is used. You see it in verse 16. Communion. Communion. Communion with the blood. Communion with the body of Christ. You see it in verse 17. We all partake. We all participate in that one bread. You see it in verse 18. Partakers of the altar. We are joining together in the food of the altar. And you see it in verse 21. Partaking of the Lord's table as opposed to the table of demons. We're speaking here about experiencing communion with God. And here again, the body and the blood of Christ meet to establish that communion with Christ. And thereby with Christ, we are experiencing that communion with the Father. And how is that accomplished? By being in communion with the blood of Christ and with the body of Christ. Through that sacrifice that Jesus offered in bearing our sins in His body on the cross. What did we hear, those of you who were here this morning from Isaiah 53? That as Christ was the one set apart by God uh, to be the sin bearer for His people. We heard it twice in Isaiah 53. The Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. And that, that body of Christ as it hung there was a body that was bearing all the sins of all of His people laid upon Him by the Father so that as Psalm 103 says, through the body and blood of Christ, through the bearing of our sins unto death and through the actual death of Christ, the penalty of our sins has been paid for. And the carrying away of our sins to the grave has been accomplished. And through that communion with the body and blood of Christ, we now experience fellowship with God. But also through that, as Paul brings out in verse 17, it's a communion that we experience together as His church. We are joined together in Christ, by Christ especially around this table. Christ uses this table to bring you into the most important fellowship you have here on earth. And that is communion with His body, the church. You know, in their time, I think less so in our time, but in their time, to share a meal together was a sign of friendship. Even if you were enemies, the one thing you never did was you never... Uh, blasphemed a table even if you were sitting with your enemy. It was a precious time of being able to eat together and enjoy together the blessing of what has been served. And to strike your enemy at a meal table was just considered by the whole of the culture one of the worst things you could do. (laughs) 
Well, Christ uses it even more to say to our souls, dear friends, do you realize, do you realize the most important fellowship that you have on the earth is that which you share as the church of Christ? You think of Psalm 87. God loves the gates of Zion more, more than all the dwellings of Jacob. And what he is saying in those words is, I am loving the assembly of my people and I am dwelling in the midst of them in a greater and mightier way so that they can know I am their God and that they together are my people. And from here, all the wells and springs of life I have to give to you. And by sharing together at the table, we are experiencing fellowship as the whole body of Christ with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that's why when the fellowship is broken because of sin, the Lord uses this sacrament to reconcile and renew those fellowships. I once had this experience, and it's not uncommon, but I had to deal with it very directly, of a man who, because he was in disagreement with someone in the church, believed that he couldn't participate in the Lord's Supper. Holding fast those words of Matthew 5, that if you have something against a brother, go and meet with him in the way. Leave your gift at the altar and reconcile so that you not be handed over to the judges. And knowing that the Lord's Supper was coming, he abstained from it, Because he believed, I'm out of fellowship with that person and until that uh, fellowship is restored, I can't commune. I I want to say that's a wrong thinking. Because what this table is designed to do is to break down those barriers that we have between one another and to make us realize that what is it that we ultimately and eternally share together as brothers and sisters in the Lord. And that is that communion we have with Christ. And when we begin to look at Jesus and see that there is our fellowship together, it makes whatever problems we have between one another very small. And it says to us, get over it. Because you have communion together in Christ. And coming to this table is an expression of that. It should humble you to say, oh, I must seek to be reconciled with my dear brother or sister whom I'm out of fellowship with. And Christ uses His table for that purpose. So that we may experience that holy communion with our God together. You have the example in the Old Testament when Hezekiah and Josiah both brought about reformation in Israel and restored the temple and the worship and they celebrated the Passover and they sent it not just into Judah but they sent messengers into all of Israel and said, come and join us because we all together are the people of God even though they fought for two centuries. (laughs) Two centuries. Two hundred years of warfare. Can you imagine? How much more at this table is the Lord saying to His people, to you, dear congregation, get over your differences. Be one. Because you have communion with Me. He uses the table for that end. 
And the last and very quickly, communion guarded. And you see that in verses 18 to 22. That Christ is using this table to speak to your hearts. Who are you? You are mine. What has He already said in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 and 20? When He talks there again about not just sexual immorality, He talks about eating and gluttony and and the abuse that we have with foods. And He says food for the body, and etc. But what does He say at the end of all that? He says, know this, that you have been bought with a price. Therefore, with your body and with your soul, commit yourself to glorifying God. Isn't that where we're brought here in this passage, down to verse 31? Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. And Christ at this table is saying to you, remember, I have purchased you. You're mine. Do you know the cost of your salvation? Do you know what it cost for God to deal with your sins so that you could be holy to Him? Have you embraced that that knowledge of what Christ endured in order to bring about your redemption and reunion and reconciliation with the Father? That's how jealous God is for you. Don't provoke Him. Remember that you are holy. Guard your life and walk. Remember that when you rise from this table, you are mine. When you go into this world, you are not part of this world. You do not have fellowship with this world. Your fellowship is with me. You are not licensed to live as freely as you choose. But you are now called to glorify God in all your being. And know that I am jealous for you. Know that you bear my name. I am your king. I do not want you taken out of my kingdom. I don't want you lured into spiritual adultery. I don't want you robbed of the glory of life that I have won for you. And he comes at this table to warn your soul with the gracious knowledge of who you are now as his beloved people. Because He wants to guard that communion that you have with Him. I dare to say, when you think of Psalm 121, you begin to understand more deeply what it means to hear those words, the Lord preserves my going out and my coming in forevermore. His hand is at work far more than our hand is in this. But that's the grace He communicates at this table. I'm keeping you for myself. So it is a precious sacrament, an ordinance that Christ Himself is using to keep us in His grace and to nourish and strengthen us in our communion with Him. Know that the Lord, He is your God. Let us pray.